Good morning, good morning, good morning, everybody. I think I'm uh, supposed to make the announcement about our double dunk day. I've already had people ask me about getting water baptized. So um, there should be a sign up out there in the foyer. If there's not, grab me. We want to get you baptized. We haven't figured out exactly where we'll be at in the river, because I don't know if you knew this, but there was a massive flood this last year. <laughs> so the currents have changed. We're trying to figure out uh, you know, how we'll do that. But um, after that, we're going to go spend time with the kiddos and get sunburned at the Oasis. Praise God. All right, Luke chapter 16, and I am concluding a series this morning, uh, Raise the Flag series, and I've just been studying spiritual truths, the freedom that's found in the cross. There's a freedom there like unlike anywhere, uh, the freedom uh, that comes in the spiritual battle that we have against the enemy, uh, because we know that uh, we can stand against him in victory. Now, one of the greatest truths that's a little bit hard to handle for people has to do with spiritual separation. And so I want to read uh, the story here of the rich man and Lazarus. And I'm going to start in Luke 16. I want to read down to the 22nd verse, and then I want to pray. Luke 16, verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. It says he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abram's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Let's pray. Father, this morning we just thank you for your mercy and love, your goodness that watches out over us. I pray, Lord, for ears to hear, eyes to see. And, and Lord, we, we pray for a revelation of spiritual things, supernatural insight into afterlife and eternity, things to come. Give us a burden heart. Make it real to us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, a few weeks ago when I was in the, a few months ago, I was in the throngs of remodeling my basement. And I made a flippant comment that I feel like I need to apologize for. I, I told you that painting is what people do in hell. Um, I did some studying and found out that I was wrong. That's actually not what they do down there. I had a mis misperception about that. People do have misperceptions about the afterlife. And I think the Bible is actually the best place for you to get information about the life that is to come. It's a mysterious book filled with mysterious insights and truths uh, into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. So as I read this parable this week, I was just praying, Lord, where do you want me to go today? And I could not escape this burden to cover this passage of Scripture. And really what the rich man, the story of the rich man and Lazarus provide for us is an intelligence report about eternity. Uh, we could say that uh, this is some information about the infernal regions. And as I read it, what I saw was a few hints about Hades. So in this intelligence report on eternity, uh, I, I want to just break it down for us. Now, I'm going to be sub ministering on the subject uh, about hell, about Hades. And as I've looked over the years, I can count on one hand the amount of times I I've actually taught in the subject. I remember David taught on it. So it's just like my fourth or fifth time. And to be totally honest with you, I don't really hear a whole lot of preaching in the modern world today about hell. It's like people are afraid to touch the subject. And I'll never forget when Pastor David taught on it. This was years ago when we were at that cafeteria church that we used to have. And David had the place quiet. 
Man, he had everyone's attention. He was talking about people burning in agony in the lake of fire. Was, he made a statement I'll never forget. And, and I've, I've often remembered this, that Jesus had more to say about hell than any other figure in the Bible. And it's almost as if God sent his most important messenger to deliver the most important message. And I remember he said those things, and it just, it just stirred me, provoked me. I'd never considered that concept before, that aspect of who God is. So I'm just going to walk through the passage as I do. I love to teach the Bible. And I'm starting here in verse 19. It says that there was a certain rich man. Now, the previous three parables, Jesus began with the exact same statement about a certain person. Scholars will debate if this is actually a parable or if it's a literal story. It starts off like a parable, but it's the only parable, the only story where Jesus actually mentions a man by name, Lazarus. And so people often aren't sure where to categorize. It said this certain rich man was clothed in purple. That's what they wore in Bible days like people wear Gucci and Armani today. He was finely dressed in linen, and it says in the King James that he fared sumptuously. I like that. Sitting by the pool on his pavilion. It said there was a certain beggar, though, named Lazarus. Someone say Lazarus. And this dude was full of sores. It means that his appearance was marred. And he laid at the gate. Actually, probably he was laid there by somebody because he was immobile, unable to move, couldn't take care of himself. He was undesirable. Yet he was desiring, the verse says in verse 21, to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And it says that the dogs came and licked his sores. That's the only comfort that this man had in life, was to have dogs come and lick the sores that were festering open upon him. And so it says in verse 22, So it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abram's bosom, and the rich man died and was buried. Verse 23 says, being in torments. Someone say torments. And you'll notice how the New King James translation here puts an S on the end of the word, which means linguistically that he was in an ongoing state of torment in Hades. There's several mentions of hell in the Bible. Sheol, one Greek word is Tartarus. Here we've got another Greek word, Hades. There's Gehenna. These are different areas or compartments that people, scholars, believe is part of hell. So here, here he's talking about Hades. It says he lifted his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and there was Lazarus in his bosom, which is like a, a side chamber, like, like, like a compartment holding place. And he cried out, in verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am, someone say it, tormented. I'm tormented, he said, in this flame. Let me give you the first uh, bit of intelligence. Here, here's our, the first briefing we can have, is that Hades is a place of torment. That's what the scriptures say about it. That's probably why people don't want to talk about it. It's a tormenting place, and that torment, as we said, appears to be ongoing. I looked up the word torment. It, it's really a word that means torture. Think of the medieval concept of a torture rack. Uh, Actually, the scriptures were talking about uh, what's called a touchstone. That, that's one of the words, a touchstone. This is in, in ancient days, medieval days, Bible days, they would take gold and they would shave it 
They rub it on an abrasive touchstone, and they could determine the quality of it. So it, it's this abrasive friction that he's talking about when he said he was tormented. You know, these, these eternal realities, as we said, are, are very hard for us with finite minds to comprehend. It, it's like something that, um, you know, we, we have a hard time just e- even considering wrapping our mind around. And there's some part about it that I think the flesh finds offensive. People might find it offensive to even discover that this is something that happens and something God ordains. I mean, it's difficult for people to fully grasp it. But it says that he was in torments. Now, I looked up the different type of torment people experience and suffer in the afterlife. And like in this passage of Scripture others, one of the ways people are tormented is with a flame in the fire. Ezekiel 66 said that. Jesus said that here in Matthew chapter 25. He's talking about this tormenting flame. The book of Revelation chapter 14 talks about a smoke uh, that torments people. It's a tormenting smoke. The thing about fire is it's painful. Now, I'm pretty excited today because after church, I'm going camping. When you've got little kids and campfires, you have to be careful because you know one wrong step in the fire, one grab of, of something on fire, your hands can get burned. I mean, it, it, you'll know it when you hit. By, it's a painful experience. They're tormented, uh, he said, by a flame. Another way people are tormented in eternity is also found in Ezekiel 66, and Jesus mentioned it in Mark chapter 9, and verse 44. He talked about a worm that does not die. And what he's describing here, this is thought to be like uh, the idea of a corpse being eaten by maggots, which is a very ghastly thought. And this is sort of what was referred to as Gehenna, when Jesus talked about a place of hell being like Gehenna. Gehenna is from the Valley of Hinnom. That's a valley outside of Jerusalem that was used as a garbage heap. And they would pile up you know, dead animals, trash, and they were always burning it. There was a perpetual fire where there was decomposing flesh. And that's what Jesus likened to a place of hell, except a worm that does not die means that you're in a state where it feels like you're being eaten but never do die. Hard to wrap your mind around that. I had to laugh because, you know, we were um, living with my grandma in those days at her house, and I remember uh, she had a fireplace, and she burned the fire from August all the way to June. I mean, she took July off, and uh, we would stick everything in that thing to keep it warm, cereal boxes, cardboard, egg cart, anything you could find, we'd burn it in there. It got so hot, it burned off the welds on the side, and I'll never forget, we named it Gehenna. That's what we said about it, it's a perpetual fire. <laughs> You know, the prophet Daniel said that hell uh, was a place of contempt and shame. Daniel 12 and verse 1 and 2. Can you imagine the shame and the frustration a person would feel of rejecting or knowing truth and having to sit through that for eternity, realizing that they had missed out on something? It's a tremendous sense of shame that accompanies that. The book of Jude says that Hell is like the the blackness of darkness forever. That means it's a place of isolation, like like a prison cell. This could be where Tartarus is at. That's that's mentioned in 2 Peter. And and it's almost like that that place of hell is a place alone. And I'm telling you, we as people are wired to need one another, which means even the antisocial people are going to get miserable in hell. I mean... You, you, you need interaction with people, and to be left alone out of that is a terrifying thought for people 
to comprehend. And by the way, what makes it challenging for people here is that the rich man was tormented in the flame. He was in a conscious state. Now, I've had people who've left church because I've taught that hell you know, is literal, and I've taught that, you know, it, that you're in a conscious state for it. I mean, until, you appear at the, until a person who's unsaved appears at the great white throne judgment, there is some level of consciousness. People do teach what's called the doctrine of annihilationalism, that like with a fire it turns you to ashes. And, and you know, the, the Bible doesn't specifically say on all that. That may be what happens to people in the lake of fire. But the bottom line is when you're in a place of hell, uh, until you appear at that judgment seat, there will be a level of consciousness, regret, sorrow, and torment that people experience. And, and it, I mean, like, th- those are thoughts from the Bible. It gives us these thoughts and clues about the afterlife. Now, here, here's a second bit of intelligence that we can provide for you in verse 25. That Abraham said, son. When he said son, this is like a term of endearment. He, he's having compassion towards this rich man. He said, you know, remember that in your lifetime, somebody say, in your lifetime. In your lifetime, he said, you received evil, the good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now, we got a complete reversal of fortunes. Because he said, now he's comforted, and you are tormented. Here's the second hint about Hades that I have. That what you do with the life you have now determines what life will be like. It determines you know, how you'll spend the next life. I mean, that's a sobering thought. A lifetime is a duration of your existence. It's the accumulation of things that you have there. It's, it's your lifetime. And, and Jesus talked about it in the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. He said that you know, there was a rich man who was not satisfied with his wealth. You know, it's funny. It seems like it's never enough for some people. He was not satisfied. He said, I'm going to have to tear everything I have down and build bigger ones. And Jesus said, fool, this very night your soul will be taken from you. He taught on the fear of God. There's something about the way you spend your life. You know, I think about how short life is, man. And I've heard it said that, you know, um, <clears throat> that uh, a life that is cut short is, is a tragedy. And I've seen people. I have, a, I have a good friend. I remember we did his funeral last year. He he died at an early age. You know, it's a, a mysterious thing why that happened. Uh, but what's worse than that, because that brother knew the Lord and served him, what's worse than that is a life that is wasted. And I have to say, I do see many people wasting their lives on trivial pursuits that will go nowhere. Yeah. So if life is short, it's, if it's a vapor, if, if, if for every one of us it's going to go by fast, what should you do with the time that you have? You know, when I think about, you know, my life, I, I, I think about, you know, all the things, it flies by so fast. And, and I guess the first thing that you should do is seek first the kingdom of God. Make it a priority to know him. You know, when I spend time with the Lord, when I'm in his presence, when I read the Bible, it produces perspective. It produces a sense of gratitude, appreciation. It gives me guidance. It gives me peace. It gives me a sense of joy with which I can continue to walk with the Lord which the Bible says is not to be regretted. There's something about that that, that is eternal in its nature and, and how it pays dividends in the life that is to come. And I get in moments where it's like, all I want to do is pursue him. Now, I opened up by telling you I had just been working on my house. And you know, when you're in a house, like we were going to flip the house. We were, you know, rolling, and I start thinking about the next thing and the next thing, and then you, 
you know, you think about another camper, or you think about getting a boat one day. And it's amazing how your pursuits can get off track. I mean, it's so easy to just get pursuing the wrong thing. And I want to pursue the Lord. I mean, that, that grabs a hold of me with the time that I have. He needs to be number one. It means that with the life you have now, if you don't want to waste it, you ought to learn how to love your neighbor. Because the rich man apparently never really did Lazarus. We have no record of him giving any scraps off his table. Maybe he thought the man was a nuisance for being left out there. We, we don't really see that in his life. We, we don't know. But what's crazy is that the rich man carried the same level of entitlement with him into eternity. He said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here to dip you know, his tongue in water for me. Think about that. He still has the attitude that Lazarus is the one outside of his gate. You know, the thing you ought to understand about the human nature we have, it's going to go with you into eternity. And people don't like to hear this, but I'm telling you, hell is filled with wicked people. That, that's who's in hell. Entitlement, a selfishness that existed right there. What should you do with the time that you have? If it's short, you should learn you know, what it means to serve somebody. Be a servant with the time that you have. Use your gifts, your talents, your resources to be a blessing to somebody. I bet you that Lazarus had an amazing obituary. I bet you he was a pillar in the community. He wrote great things about him. And I'm willing to bet that, or not Lazarus, the rich man. I'm willing to bet that Lazarus had no obituary. No one said anything about him. No one maybe even noticed that he died. What's crazy, though, is we don't have a record of, of, of Lazarus doing a whole lot either because he was a crippled man. He really couldn't. His gifts you know, were very limited in nature, and yet in spite of that, we can see that even though the rich man appeared to be a winner in life, he was a loser in death. And through the grace and the mercy of God, you might appear to be a loser in life but can be a winner in death. I mean, I just think about his mercy in these moments. What you do with this life is super, super important, and it goes by so fast. You've got to be so intentional and take every moment when it comes. Intelligence briefing. I'm on a third thought here in verse number 26. He said, besides all this. He said, if that wasn't the case, he said, between us and you, there is fixed a great gulf. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass over here to us. Here's a terrifying thought about hell. It's that hell is a place of separation. Hades represents this moment of, of, of separation. You cannot pass back and forth. If you're in hell, you don't get to go to heaven. If you're in heaven, you definitely don't even want to go to hell. When you read the Greek word, when he said... Uh, Besides all this, if you understood Greek, what, what that word is implying is that separation is not because of the great chasm. It's put there on purpose. There's a purposeful separation. You know, there's a verse in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, and it says that the Lord is going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, and they'll be eternally punished away from the presence of the Lord. A, way, a separation will take place. Conversely, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the moment of death, you're, you're going to have exactly what happened with the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was buried in the ground. No, the rich man, I'm sorry, I get these two mixed up. The rich man was buried. 
Lazarus was carried by the angels. He was escorted into heaven. I mean, I, I tell you, I want to be the one who is carried up into heaven in that moment. Yeah, is the only thing these two had in common, the rich man and Lazarus, the only thing they had in common was that there's a date that they were appointed to die. Every person is appointed that. It's like that's inevitable in life, death and taxes. I bet you Lazarus didn't pay much taxes. <laughs> You're going to have to face that. Now, the story here is filled Filled with theological complexities. That's what makes this such an interesting passage of Scripture. Is it a parable? Because a lot of times people will say, well, you can't build doctrine off parables. And this story's got some interesting accounts of things. Like, he's talking here about a place called Abraham's bosom. I mean, what, what is that? You know, the, the Jewish people believe that Gehenna, a place of Hades, was very close to what's called paradise. And, and you know, Jesus told the, the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the Bible says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 that when he died on the cross, the first thing Jesus did was descend into the lower parts of the earth where he led captivity captive. And what people believe is that there was this holding compartment in, in perhaps the center of the earth, perhaps where people speculate hell would be. It's a hot place. Uh, that, that when Jesus went down into that place to visit the righteous dead, people like Abraham, people like David, th then the idea is that that he led them into heaven. That seems to be what the Scripture indicates. And a lot of that doctrine is based on what you read here in this parable uh, in, in Luke chapter 16. And, and so it's got these theological complexities. By, by the way, the book of Isaiah says that hell actually has enlarged itself. It, it could be that when that exodus took place of the righteous dead into heaven, that, that hell actually grew in preparation for people who would be there. I mean, these, these are interesting theological realities. Uh, it tells us you know, that you can't go back and forth. I mean, when you think about Hades, when you, when you think about that lack of separation, it, it, it's, it's not that, it's not that you're, you're totally cut off from God, because God is omnipresent. And David said, if I make my bed in hell, you will be there with me. It's just that you will never experience his forgiveness his blessing, his presence in your life. like He's aware of what's taking place in hell, God is. But he does not extend himself or his presence to help anybody in that condition, which is a terrifying thought. What's so scary about Hades is it's final. I mean, there's something about that separation that is just so hopeless. I think about when I'm down, when I'm discouraged, I just come get in the presence of the Lord. I spend time with him and and, and, and he helps build me up, man. He, he, see, th these thoughts are hard for people to wrap their minds around. Now, I went to Oral Roberts University, and I, I, one of my uh, professors is a man named Paul King. And Paul was there years ago with a well-known preacher. I mean, he was on TV, had big shows. And, and this, this, this guy sat next to Dr. King every day, and they would get into debates because uh, Dr. King's friend never took the Scriptures literally. He, he would always find some kind of cute way of allegorizing. Well, that can't be real. You know what happened to that, man? He ended up falling into a false doctrine called universalism. And he was teaching that, you know, the devil and his angels one day are going to be redeemed by God. Everyone's going to be in heaven. There's going to be no consequences. And, and my friend, Dr. King, he wasn't too surprised by that because he watched the guy in seminary come to weird conclusions back then. See, I'm just reading the scriptures from the lens that if these things are literal and true, it's a terrifying thought. 
I mean, it's a fearful thing. It's a heavy topic. And it, we don't understand it now. One day, you're going to understand perfectly that hell and, and separation have to do with a, a consequence for sin. It has to do with God's ultimate restoration of humanity himself. It serves as a reminder uh, about what happens to humanity in a fallen state. I mean, it's a wild thought. But you can see just from the nature of the topic that people today don't want you to... They, it's like we've lost sight of warning people about this. Instead, we want you nice and cozy and comfortable in air-conditioned rooms on hot days. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Here's an intelligence briefing on the last thing I want to say. Verse 27. It says that the, that, that the rich man said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. And, I, and he may testify to them lest they come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, they have the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets. He said they can listen to that. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said, if they do not hear the word of God, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Which could, in fact, be a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. Because those of us that are sitting here today all believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but not everyone does believe that. Now, here, here's the last bit of intelligence I can provide for you. It, it's that God's word serves as a warning. I mean, his word is this warning, which is an indication of trouble, problems, peril, bad things that could come. Um, it, it, it's... It's interesting to me that when Paul wrote Colossians, he said we should teach every man and we should warn every man. Uh, the scriptures are filled with warnings, and the Word of God serves as this warning for us to look at and read. Now, apparently, it wasn't the wealth of the rich man that put him in hell. Because, you know, sometimes people got problems with, with people who might have money. They, they think what, you know, they'll misquote the scripture, they'll say, you know, that uh, money is the root of all evil. Even that's not what it says. And sometimes people get judgmental of other people because they might have means. And Jesus did say it's harder for a rich man to go through the, you know, enter heaven than they have to go through the eye of the needle. And people misunderstand what that means. It was not his wealth that put him in hell. That's the point here. What it was was his unwillingness to take heed to the scriptures. He's sitting in hell, and this man obviously has a knowledge of the Bible because he can identify Father Abraham. He'd probably been sitting in synagogue and Sunday school all his life and knew exactly who it was, but somehow that word warning never did take root in his heart, and he ended up in a place of absolute terror. I mean, he, 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 Father Abraham, please help me. Here, here's the thing you got to understand about God's word is that, man, it, it is so sacred. I'm telling you, it's got more to say about the afterlife than anything else. And I, I'll just be honest with you, you know, sometimes as a preacher... Uh, I often feel like, man, I just don't know if I'm getting it done. I, I wish, you know, I could do more for the Lord, and I'd, I'd like to have more crowds and bigger people and see more people saved and want to see miracles take place, and, and you want to do all these things. And, and, and sometimes I might get down on myself, but then I have moments, like I had last week where I was preaching, and I could just feel God's hand upon me in the middle of the message. And it reminds me of the book of James, chapter 3, verse 1, when it says that teachers will receive a stricter judgment. I have to think about, as a, as a man of God, 
the things I'm teaching, I'm going to be rewarded or judged in eternity in, a, in, a, in an incredible way because the Word of God is a sacred thing. I mean, this is serious truth for people to comprehend. How will God look at that in the light of eternity? It's really an incredible thing. Man, uh, the Word of God is final. And, and that's what makes it the final authority. There's no other authority like the Word of God. It's what sets parameters. It defines truth and boundaries. And truth is the thing that will set you free and help you have good relationships and navigate your way through life. And when I think about you know, what the Scripture says, it says if you follow it and you obey it, you will be blessed in life for it. I want the blessing of God. I want the Word of God in my life and my heart because the truth will set you free. I mean, it's like this is the authority in life. Here's what makes the Word of God. So the warning is that you need to obey it, listen to it. Follow it. Uh, the reason the Word of God is so powerful is because it has the ability to penetrate hearts and minds. That's what it says about itself. It's sharp enough as a two-edged sword to, to get down in between the joints and the marrow of a bone. It can penetrate between spirit and soul. I mean, it goes right to the heart. So when you listen to the Word of God, it, it's that time when your conscience will rebuke you and cut you when you know you're wrong about something, when you know something's not right, the Word of God right there will penetrate something. That's your conscience. And the warning is you better listen to your conscience. You need to have the Word of God in your heart because what it's going to do is differentiate between right from wrong, wicked and evil, good and bad. And that Word has that penetrating ability unlike anything else. And Scripture says through the foolishness of preaching, it provokes people's conscience. There's something about the Word of God only the Word of God that can do that. That's what Father Abraham's telling. See, the Word of God's powerful because it's, it's, like it's like a seed that gets sown. And the seed gets sown in your heart, and what happens is as it grows and matures, it starts producing fruit. And you can identify a person <clears throat> who is really a believer because you'll see fruit in their life. That's what Jesus said, by the fruit you'll know people. And that fruit grows into a place of maturity, but you know, there's an interesting verse in the book of Hebrews 6 and verse 8. It says, if you're not producing fruit, then it's thistles and thorns whose end, the Bible says, is to be burned. It's almost like if you're not being fruitful in life as a Christian, if you really can't identify the fruit that a person has, if you don't see their love and their joy and their forgiveness and their peace, and you don't see the way they treat people, it's almost like, man, things could get burned, you could end up separated from God. That's a crazy thought. There's something about being fruitful. The warning is you better be fruitful with what you have and what you know. Uh, you know, when I think about fruitfulness, like I'm a pastor, and by 40 years old, you kind of figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at, like what your capabilities are, things start getting clearer for you and your calling or what you're doing in life. And and, you know, I feel like I can take passages of Scripture and teach the Bible. I love to do it, man. It's a passion, and it's just something that comes naturally. I enjoy it so much. I love on people. But I have discovered, you know, I really am not in the office of an evangelist. Now, my friend Chris Michelson's coming next week, and he, he is a legit evangelist. Like, that is what he does. He can't help himself but preach the gospel. He likes to get people saved. He was uh, an assistant for a guy named Brother 
Reinhard Bonnke, perhaps the greatest evangelist you know, in the last 100 years here. Uh, he worked with another guy named Daniel Kalinda, and now he's going to Pakistan. And I mean, he's having tremendous, tremendous fruit in that region of the world, man. He's seeing people saved. Uh, that is something that blesses me. I feel like the Scripture says do the work of an evangelist, but I sometimes I want to hang out with guys like that because it rubs off on me, gives me another perspective. And, and evangelism, that's what we need to see take place in this nation. People get saved. I think America might have the most incredible, fertile harvest of souls if people ever did get awakened spiritually here. I mean, it, it, we, we have such an opportunity ahead of us everywhere we look all the time to be a witness for people. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I went through the whole passage here. They didn't make one mention about painting. Did you see that? <laughs> Nobody said nothing about painting. Like, <laughs> no one said that your wife said you have to make everything perfect on the trim. <laughs> no part of that. No. What it made me think about, though, uh, it is about eternal realities. There was a guy on TV named E.V. Hill. You ever heard of E.V. Hill? He was a black preacher in Los Angeles. They asked him one time, why are you a Christian? You know what he said? I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> I don't want to go to hell. Th th these are real thoughts. So I don't want to go to hell. Maybe you don't want to go to hell. And it's a very simple thing. Scripture says, call in the name of the Lord. I've taught that over and over again. You put your faith in Jesus. You just open up your mouth. You say it right now. Say, Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. I, I want to believe in you. Yeah, have a relationship with you. I mean, it it it's that simple. That that's the pathway to salvation. You pray that prayer. You're sincere about it. You bear fruit. You are saved. It it if it's something real in you. But, you know, maybe this morning you're sitting here and, and uh, you realize you're not bearing much fruit. I mean, it could be a lack of fruit. It could be a lack of things taking place in your life. And, and, and maybe you feel convicted about it. Maybe you think, man, I need some things to grow. I, I, I want to walk with them. And whenever you feel that way, like, man, I just want to do more for him. I want to be more fruitful. I, I want to know him closer. That's often how I feel. Or maybe it has to do with the warnings. Maybe you're not listening to a conscience. Maybe you're not listening to a voice of clarity and a voice of reason. Maybe you just think to yourself, I don't know. I, I, I'm putting it off. I want to pray that over you this morning. I want to pray for fruitfulness and listening. So Lord, this morning, I just thank you for ears to hear, eyes to see. And only the word of God is sharp enough to penetrate hearts and minds. I pray that over people. I pray open hearts, conscience to be ready. Give us insight from this book to help us understand eternal things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know what really struck out to me at the end of this passage as I was praying? Lazarus had five brothers, five family members, and when he sat in hell, all he could think about was, I don't want them to be where I am. And that just gripped my heart. I'd like us to stand up this morning. I bet you everybody in the room knows somebody who went right with the Lord. A child, uh, a neighbor, a, net, a friend of yours. I mean, like a family member that maybe has walked away. And as we close out this morning, I have a passion in my heart. I have a conviction to pray for your family to be right with the Lord. And I'll tell you why I have that, because I am, I am the product of a family whose mother and father prayed me 
away from destruction in my life. Man, I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for people who never did stop praying. And I want to encourage you out there. Maybe you feel like I've been praying for my husband forever. I've been praying for these kids at the back. I've been praying for this family member forever. And I want to challenge you to never stop praying. Lazarus was praying even in hell for his family to be saved. That's quite a thought. So I'd like to invite, you know, our, our altar workers up here to pray. And if you've got somebody in your heart, if you know somebody who's a family member of yours you want prayer for, I want to come down and we're going to worship the Lord and intercede. So altar workers, if you'd come, if you want prayer for a family member, we want to spend the time to pray with you because this is a serious thought. I mean, these things weigh heavy in the heart of eternity. Let's worship the Lord. If you want prayer for a family member, come on down, man. We'll pray with you. You can be dismissed with that. There's a grace when the heart is under fire Another way when the walls are closing in And when I look at the space between Where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be alone there was another in the fire standing next to me there was another in the waters holding back the seas and should I ever need reminding of how good there is a cross that bears the burden Where another died for me There is another in the fire Hey, if you got someone in your heart, man, I'd love to have you come pray with us. Pray with us. Dead, left for dead beneath the waters I'm no longer a slave to my sin anymore And should I fall in the space between What remains of me and this reckoning Either way I won't bow to the things of this world And I know I know I will never be alone There is another in the fire Standing next to me There was another in the waters Holding back the seas And should I ever need reminding What power set me free a grave that holds nobody now that power lives in me there is another in the fire oh there is another in the fire oh there is another in the fire another in the fire oh, oh. and I can see the light in the darkness as
as the darkness bows to him i can hear the roar in the heavens as the space between wears thin i can feel the ground shake beneath us as the prison walls cave in nothing stands between us nothing stands between us there is no other name but the name that is jesus he who was and still is and will be through it all. So come what may in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning. I know I will never be alone. I know I will never be alone. There'll be another in the fire. Standing next to me, there'll be another in the waters, holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding, how good you've been to me, I'll count the joy come every battle, cause I know that's where you'll be. And I can see the lights in the darkness As the darkness bows to Him I can hear the roar in the heavens As the space between wears thin I can feel the ground shake beneath us As the prison walls came in Nothing stands between us Nothing stands between us up here I'm praying I have a burden and I, I look out at friends people I know and I know some of you praying for children I know it and I just want to encourage you never stop praying never stop praying it, it, the, the Lord's mercies are great and it is not his will that any should perish that's what the scripture says I firmly believe in all my heart that your prayers are much more powerful and much more effective than you realize or give them credit for and I want to encourage you to never stop praying. Hey, we love you all very much. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the service, man. Uh, invite someone. By the way, invite someone out to church next week, man, especially if they're not right with the Lord. Because we'll have a guy in the house who knows how to get people saved. That's a gift that God has. So we love you much. We'll catch you all next Sunday. God bless you.